Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 24 of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gade. J Station under fire for Ouija board challenge on dead girlfriends. Huh? You- <laughs> YouTuber J Station claims his girlfriend Alexia died earlier this month, and his latest video is him communicating with her on a Ouija board. Uh, oh, 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 no. <laughs> on January 22nd, J Station uploaded an emotional video where he claimed his girlfriend was lost to a drunk driver. However, just the next day, a video was uploaded that featured her extensively, but the YouTuber says that they had five videos ready to upload in the wake of her apparent death. Sure. Um, almost immediately, many fans doubted his girlfriend was actually gone, with YouTuber Ordinary Gamers going so far as to contact local police departments, only to find that she was not, in fact, dead. Jesus Christ. So, this, he has also been criticized for videos like this in the past, such as when he claims he was able to speak to rapper <laughs> Mac Miller after he passed oh using the God. same method. Yes, yes, more blood to to lubricate the content wheels. The let's just ugh. This is listen. This kid is probably nineteen. Oh no, he's like thirty something, Derek. Fuck. And he's incredibly popular on YouTube. I um, what do you call it? Actually, a YouTuber, Thought Slime, who owns. People should listen to Thought Slime if they don't listen to Thought Slime already, or watch Thought Slime. I should say. Uh, he did a video recently about J Station uh, as a kind of a a. How do you use paradigm as an adjective? Paradigmal? Paradigmal or paradigmatic, something like that. Um, As an archetypal, let's say, example of a certain kind of uh, culture that YouTube supports and encourages that I would highly recommend to anybody. But um, JStation also is the kind of person who he kind of got famous for doing a lot of videos where he claims to be speaking to Jesus on the phone. And not, Um, not like a Bob Hope bit. No, like a, like. Like a thing, like a real thing, like like the 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 the, the, sa- the savior of humanity, Jesus H Christ, is on yep, my phone. That one, yes. He also claimed uh, to talk to Kermit the Frog on the phone, and then that Kermit seems died. Less, oh boy, I was gonna say that seems less outlandish, but <laughs> and then Kermit died, so they had to call Frog Jesus that way. Frog Jesus, this mm. I was <sighs> I share a decade with this guy. I bl- I, he's definitely in his late 20s, if not his 30s. I'm pretty sure he's in his 30s. Man, I was going to say the kids aren't all right, but turns out it's the adults the aren't all right either. Turns out adu- adults aren't all right either. Man. I've watched a couple of his videos as I've rotted away in quarantine, especially now that I am unemployed. So apparently that's what I have to do. Um, so you just, just watch of- the worst things I can find. I don't know if that's a good long-term strategy for uh, keeping your marbles together and I, and while you're in self-isolation. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, I've been, he's the most annoying person on the planet. <laughs> I would recommend no one watches videos. And that's uh, a lot of contestants in the running for that title. Like, I would rather watch PewDiePie than this man. Oof. Yeah, rough, right? Ugh, it's not, it's not the hardiest of recommendations. But I think we have some movies we'd, we would actually like to recommend today, don't we, Derek? I'm Isabel Arf, by the way. <laughs> um, 
we do have some things to recommend. And uh, interestingly enough, it might be all four movies we're going to be talking about today. Is this a stacked list? This is, like, as far as, like, uh, four packs that we do for an episode, this is up there with what we've already done. This is, like, among the best series of films that we've done. Absolutely. Um, um, so but, but, but what is it we do on this podcast, Eric? What, Look at what? that, segues. <laughs> We're professionals. I'm, I'm like Jackie Chan. I got all these segues. Does Jackie Chan write segues? Oh, I, I'm so happy I get to tell you about this, Derek. Yeah, Jackie Chan loves segues. He actually like buys a new one for every movie, and then he gives it away to someone in the cast. And I think he owns a segue dealership. <laughs> I mean, you can't you, you can't break your bones forever for for the sake of our entertainment. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, I'm Jackie Chan is segue fan, the world's biggest segue fan. After now that the inventor of segues is dead. Yeah. And and Paul Blart isn't real. As much as we all wish he was. He was. <laughs> Every day, I, I pray to God that Paul Blart could manifest into reality, but it hasn't happened yet. There's a Paul Blart somewhere. Symbolically or like literally? No, symbolically. I mean... Symbolically. Well, we're all Paul Blart in our hearts at, at our best moments. <laughs> yes. <I've... laughs> when, when you're the best person you can be, you are spiritually Blart. I've not seen those movies, so I don't know what I'm talking about. You should watch him. There's there's a part where Paul Blart fights a, an ostrich or an emu or something. Uh-huh. All right. Maybe I'll get to that one day. Uh, one thing that I did get to, or should get to, rather, is explaining what the fuck it is we do here at Metal Brow Madness. Go for it. All right. So, uh, back in... Uh, man, remember the before times? Remember August 2018? Remember uh, a year and a half ago? Remember when things, <laughs> things seemed like they were bad then? Ah, oh, man. Anyways, it was in that faithful month. That, uh, that that you, Isabel, took a screenshot, or uh, took a uh, snapshot, rather, of the Internet Movie Database's top 250 films of all time, Frozen in Ember. And, wait a minute, Frozen in Amber. Ember is fire. Amber is the stuff that stuff gets frozen in. In any case, we've got this big-ass list of movies, right? And uh, what we did is we, well, you put them in a big old single elimination bracket. Uh, to fill out the bracket, because uh, as math wizards out there will understand, uh, you need a square number for a single elimination bracket to work, like, without having buys or any of that bullshit. So we added uh, three movies each to get the t- uh, to get the number of films in the bracket. What if you want to have hellos? What I'm if sorry? you want to have? If you want to- <laughs> oh, if you instead wanna- of buys? Yeah, Derek. What if you want to have hellos? Well, that's a bit outside of our purview, Isabel. That was great stuff. I'm I'm gonna keep I'm gonna book bookmark that one. I'm gonna put that at the very beginning of the episode as a cold open. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we both put in three movies uh, that weren't uh, that were kind of bubbling under the 250, and now we have the full 250 uh, 256 movie list uh, that we're going to use. And um, each of those movies is going to go one against the other until we get eventually to the best movie of all time. Asterisk. Uh, we say asterisk because. This is that we're trying to find the best movie that's on this list, which is not to say that it's necessarily the best movie of all time, because obviously that's something that's very subjective. Um, so we're at somewhere in round one. The um, the actual place we're at is lost to time. Uh, we're in the middle of a desert, just waiting to find an oasis somewhere. The oasis uh, is incidentally the matchup that's going to involve the number one seed in our tournament. The Shawshank Redemption. But that's a long ways off. Right now, we've got these four movies to contend with. 
We've got Heat versus Judgment at Nuremberg and Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King versus Dog Day Afternoon. So should we just get right into it? Derek, I'd love nothing more than that, seeing as I'm at uh, my partner's house and I feel really <laughs> awkward recording in her room. Are they there there? Uh, she's not looking at me like the door's closed. Like I, I have privacy to record. She's being very kind. Uh, so our first matchup, the, uh, this, uh, we've got a close one. We've got some close seeds and we've got some far seeds. Uh, this is the close match in terms of seeding. The 122nd seed heat, uh, released in 1995, directed by Michael Mann, written by Michael Mann, starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Tom Sizemore, uh, Ashley Judd, Wes Studi, there's, uh, Val Kilmer. There's a lot of great Every single person that was acting in the 90s was apparently in this. Basically. Uh, and, uh, it was a hit. It was, uh, it cost $60 million to make, made $187 million worldwide, and, uh, didn't really get much awards play, but, um, to borrow something I've said about prior films, it's had a long tail as far as American action cinema goes. Uh, even though it's a relatively recent film. Versus the 135 seed, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, released in 1961, uh, written, uh, written by Abby Mann, directed by Stanley Kramer, starring Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Richard Widmark, Marlene Dietrich, basically everyone who was acting in the late 50s. These are star-studded casts. Yeah, both all the, these movies are star-studded. All the skies are dark because the stars are in... Are Nuremberg. Because <laughs> they did something awful. Oh, yes, exactly. Um, let's see. $3 million budget in early 60s bucks. $10 million uh, take at the box office, which I can only assume is a... I'm not sure if that's uh, international or domestic. It doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Um and as far as, I mean, I I, I, I'm loving the lazy, the, the I was going to say lazy fair, which is like your, it's, it's a really good children's uh, music festival, lazy fair. <laughs> I meant laissez fair, the laissez fair nature with which you are approaching these discussions. I'm yes, enjoying. My, my, my laissez fair approach vis-a-vis the budget of Judgment in Nuremberg. Probably the most important detail. If we don't know that, how can we make a proper judgment of Nuremberg? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, the film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Max Schell won the award, uh, won Best Actor. Abby Mann won Best Adapted Screenplay. And the other nominations were Best Picture, Director, uh, Actor for Spencer Tracy, uh, Best Supporting Actor Montgomery Cliff, Best Supporting Actress Judy Garland, Best Sec, uh, Best Art Direction in Black and White, Best Cinematography in Black and White, back when they had different categories for Black and White and Color Movies. Uh, best costume design, black and white, and best film editing. So this was a sensation. But let's not talk about that. We'll get to that. Uh, let's talk about a movie that's awesome instead. Let's talk about Heat. Okay, Derek, how do you feel about Heat? I'm for it. It is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it will surprise anyone out there listening in podcast land or anyone that knows me anyway uh, that I am a big fan of the films of Michael Mann. And Heat, while not my favorite, is a goddamn masterpiece. It's There's like no two ways about it. Um, it's the yardstick with which like modern action cinema is measured, like modern crime cinema is measured. And it's not 
the, it's not like the script. It's not necessarily, it's Michael Mann's cinema is a lot about sort of like, um, there's a lot about texture. That sounds like a real pretentious ass thing to say, but it is. It's a cinema of, te- it's a te- it's cinema of texture and details. It's vibes. As vibes. Exactly. If you need some vibes. He makes vibes movies for, I guess film bros, if I'm being reductive, because Michael Mann is like, he's he, he's championed by a certain subsection of of cinephiles, which people would identify as uh, film bros or uh, auteur bros. The thing is, they're right. <laughs> yeah, I think like most of those don't actually end up panning out. A lot of those uh, quote unquote film bro darlings, but Michael sure. Mann is one of the few that I I also, as Derek was saying, I'm a massive michael mann fan i'm a, a man head I'm, I'm a man michael I'm, a fan, man. I, I'm a fan of man as al pacino would say you're a fan f-a-n-n i like that let's uh <laughs> let's get that tr- trending hashtag <laughs> fan for, for the for this episode um but no i think that this is undisputably a masterpiece for michael mann like you said i don't think it's my favorite just because uh as we were talking about off air i prefer the more abstract michael mann like when he got super weird later in his career with like uh, Miami Vice and Black Hat and Collateral and things of that nature, but as those far- three movies are also fucking incredible. Yes, but as far as a straight ahead crime film goes, I don't think you can get very much better than Heat. So Heat is like the classic cops and robbers story. It's well, you've got Al Pacino, who's starting to be big Al Pacino at this point in the mid nineties. He's heading towards Jack and Jill. That's right. <laughs> oh boy. Hurtling um, towards Jack and Jill. Yes, as one does. One does not crawl into Jack and Jill. One hurdles themselves towards it. Slouches um, towards Bethlehem to be born. So yeah, so classic cops and robbers story. Al Pacino is the um uh plays Vincent Hanna. He's a homicide detective. Classic, not a cop on the edge, but classic sort of, you know, uh, deadbeat husband type. You know, he's like, you know, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a job man. And so is Robert De Niro, who plays um, Neil McCauley, career criminal. Uh, and um, this is a uh, this is a heist film, and the heists in this film are uh, friggin' exceptional. Yeah, there's a l- lot of Val Kilmer in those heists, and I always prefer my heists with a little bit of Val Kilmer in them. Is this Val Kilmer's best performance? No, I, I mean I think that's. I mean, because I'm an asshole, I would go with Twixt. <laughs> um, sure, the it's Prince not the Ford first Coppola time you brought up Twixt. Yes, it is a great film. It should, people should rewatch it if they uh, underrated it the first time they viewed it. I think he's wonderful in that. I also think, uh, as much as I hate Jim Morrison, I think his performance in The Doors is actually wonderful. Sure. By your favorite director, Oliver Stone. Oh, God. It makes sense that, uh, I know we're not talking about Oliver Stone right now, but it makes sense that Oliver Stone, of all people, would be the one to direct The Doors movies because Jim Morrison is the Oliver Stone of rock and roll music in that he's an insufferable piece of shit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> just getting extra shots in for Oliver. I didn't get enough in when we did Platoon, so I need to get some more shots in Oliver Stone every chance I can get. And Jim Morrison. He's already dead, so it doesn't really matter, but, you know, hey, why not? Um, but uh, I think this is definitely one of Valkyrie's most textured performances. Yes. And one where he has most opportunity to give a ton of range. Oh, he's also wonderful in The Ghost in the Darkness, by the way. I'm not sure. I I don't think I know what that is. The go- oh, you should uh, watch the. We should watch the Ghost in the Darkness together at some point on our new Discord that we might have by the time you're listening to this. Uh, it's a movie about two uh, killer lions in uh, Africa in 
colonial times, and Valcomer is set to, uh, sent to kill them, essentially, okay. with uh, Anthony Hopkins. And it's a uh, classic man versus nature movie that uh, has some really interesting de- dream sequences and is far more patient than other movies of its type. I think it holds up, and the interesting thing about it is that one of the main subjects of it is that uh, white colonialism in Africa is a disease that brought these uh, deadly lions with them, and that lions were only doing this because of the disease of, of white people, essentially. It's a very subversive film for what it is. Written by William Goldman, also starring Michael Douglas, scored by Jerry Goldsmith. Michael shot- Douglas, that's what I was saying instead of Anthony Hopkins. Sorry. Uh, shot by Vilma Zygmunt. Damn. Bernard Hill, who we're going to talk about in just a second. Damn, this is this is really interesting. Yeah, but well, but it's not Heat. It's so. not Heat. Heat is a, an even better film than Ghost in Darkness. I think the thing that makes Heat really successful to me is the thing that I think a lot of people have critiqued about it, which is the length. Where I think we're going to talk about Judgment at Nuremberg in a moment, which yes. is a movie that's about as long mm-hmm. and drags quite a bit and feels like it has a bunch of scenes that you kind of don't need and you could just cut out. Whereas even the slack in a Michael Mann film feels essential. You need that slack for the rest of everything to work. If you just had the the bones of this, mm-hmm. it's, it's dry. It ends up not having the same kind of tone, having the same kind of texture to it, like you spoke of, the same kind of feel and atmosphere. Whereas... By giving it that space to breathe and giving us time with all these characters, it ends up being a far more emotionally resonant film than it otherwise ever could be, even with like the best of writing. Yeah, the sl- the slack is where uh, the slack is where the emotions are. Yes, the slack is where the um, where the hints of the abstract direction which uh, Michael Mann would would uh, go towards in the late nineties and early two thousands and through the two thousands, uh, like then that final chase scene. Uh, there's that super shallow focus where all the lights mm-hmm. behind him are blown out, which is beautiful and amazing. And just no one shoots at night like Michael Mann does. It's such a particular character of the light and a particular character of the film grain that I'm always impressed he's able to get. Yeah, no one wants to do it because it's such a pain in the ass to yes. do. <laughs> and Michael Mann, if we know anything about him, is that he will go to great lengths to get the shot and the color and the image that he wants, even if like a lot of people like the the sort of um artifacted colors when you try to shoot at night is an acquired taste of some. Mm-hmm. But that's the look you go for. That's the look he's progressively gone towards, those kind of like blown out artifacted digitals. Yes. And in a way, when you talk about him being a bit of a stickler and a pain in the ass and really trying to get that perfect shot and mm-hmm. That combined with the way he's so focused on tone and so focused on mood pieces, oh, more than plot and more than, not that his plots are falling vibes. by the wayside, uh, but yeah, it's about vibes. It reminds me a lot, funny enough, of my other uh, my other guy, Terry, Terry Malick. Terrence Malick. Uh, whereas Terrence Malick is making essentially films about God that happen to take place in America. Michael Mann is making films about America that happen to have God in them. Not to be too highbrow. I, I, I thought I, I thought the way you were going to break that it was like while Terrence Malick makes film about God, Michael Mann makes film about men. I think he makes films about the way that men are lacking and the way that men are disempowered and short sighted, short sighted, and unable to do the things that they say they are supposed to be doing. And essentially, as film bro, it's really very tragic. 
Yeah, as, as film bro, as we talk about these films being, they're essentially about the impossibility of living up to certain masculine standards. Yeah, I would agree. Is there anything else that I want to bring up about uh, about Heat? Um, it's fucking amazing. If you've not seen it, watch it. I agree with Derek. Um, so Judgment in Nuremberg is the movie that Heat is up against. Yes, um, and I wanted to reserve more time for this one because it's a deeply strange film that we're probably not going to talk about again, but I think we need to emphasize that it is... For what it's trying to do and what it actually is doing, it is one of the stranger films in the list, I think, oddly. It's such an interesting artifact of a time – it's it's a film at the crossroads of um, New Hollywood is right around the bend, and you can hear those footsteps a-coming. Well, Hollywood sure as shit can. The war has been over for 15 years, so that wound is still fresh. It's it's a movie that comes at an interesting crossroads, and I think this is a classic best intentions movie because the ostensible point of this film, the reason for being of this film is, I don't know if I want to say noble, but, you know, is like, is in the abstract good. <clears throat> is but, it though? I mean... I, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get more we'll into, get into it. it. I actually have uh, some some criticisms of the politics of this film and also some things it leaves out that I think are important, uh, but we'll get into that in a moment. But the execution of it and the vernacular in which it is executed makes gives this movie a kind of, not necessarily tonal whiplash, but almost aesthetic whiplash. A, f- a formal whiplash. Formal whiplash. That... Where, I mean, you said it looks like 12 Angry Men. It, well, yes. It, because, it, it, okay, so here's, so here's this. Stanley Kramer was uh, a director known for like these sort of social problem films, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got, well, he's, Stanley Kramer is known for a lot of things. He was interested in these social problem films, but he also directed like, it's a mad, 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 mad world. He has quite the varied filmography. He's kind of uh, he he was he's a middle brow guy. <laughs> I don't think it's uncharitable to call Stanley Kramer a middle brow director because he's a studio guy. He's got a sure hand, very clean style, and will direct just about anything. Because he also directed. Uh, uh, now that I think about it, guess who's coming to dinner? Which would come out a few years later. Which is the last film that um, what's his Spencer name? Spencer Tracy. Yeah, Spencer Tracy was in. That's right. So. So, dude has an interest in, like, uh, broad social political topics, but is also kind of a classical Hollywood craftsman. Now, what do you get when you marry these classical, clean Hollywood chops with the Nuremberg Trials? Well, with I'm glad you With actual asked. footage of concentration camps. With actual footage of concentration camps shot by the Americans and the British when they broke in, or when they, when the, when, when they got in. It's unnerving and weird (laughs) it's a movie where it feels like it's trying to to do its best at what it's doing but it doesn't have the formal chops to actually be to actually hold on to the tone it needs to have because its tone is very operatic in a way especially uh the uh the acting of um who who was it that won the the award the oscar um maximilian shell Yes, uh, Max Schell is very big. Every every speech he gives in the courtroom, he's like yelling through it. And 
I think his performance is actually the worst one in the film because of that reason. It it matches the least with the style of the film or, or what the, the subject of the film rather. It matches the most with the style of a certain type of Hollywood film, a certain type of grandstanding speechifying. Yeah, it's a very specific kind of like uh, of like a very specific kind of courtroom drama acting. Yes, the one where when the courtroom drama happens to be about whether. Judges in Nazi Germany are responsible for the war crimes that happened under Nazi <sighs> Germany. That doesn't match up. I'm just think like if someone came up to me and like, okay, so we got we got this idea for the next big social drama. It's the Nuremberg trials, <laughs> and we're gonna get Stanley Kramer to direct. And it's like, huh? Are, are 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 we sure we want to do this? Like it's Twelve Angry Men. Yes. Okay. And I think that's to the, the film's strengths are that it does that very well for what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And its weakness is that what it's trying to do is maybe not what you should be doing. Yeah. So this is like, it's like, it's a commendable effort, but, <laughs> but maybe you shouldn't have been doing this in the first place. Yeah. It's like, um, not to, um, not to minimize the, uh, the, the, the horrors of the Holocaust as it were. Um, but if it's like, I am going to, I am going to try to perform this, this, uh, this, this, like, this Chopin piano piece with one hand. Blanga, 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 blanga. <laughs> well, he gave it a best, he gave it his best shot. Should we talk about the politics of this film? <laughs> um, I'm willing to listen about the politics of this film. Okay. Um, I don't think I have anything insightful to say. Read the politics. Well, I, th- I think you will have uh, something to say because I want to talk about this film and its relation to liberalism. But okay. before I do that, I want to discuss one thing that's very particular to me. Uh, mm-hmm. That this is going to be a critique that is an incredibly Isabel critique. So I hope everyone's oh. prepared for this. All right, buckle up. This film did not mention Carl Schmidt enough. Schmidt enough. <laughs> um, Who is Carl Schmidt? Hey everyone, it's Isabel. Uh, there was a long discussion of Carl Schmidt in the middle of this episode um, that did not get into what I wanted to get into. So there's going to be a breakout episode uh, where I actually have time to talk about Carl Schmidt's political theories uh, and, and judicial theories and how they might have influenced judges during Nazi Germany. Uh, <clears throat> that'll be a breakout episode soon enough. Uh, until then, enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye. The bigger problem I think that I have with this film is that, um, what is Max Shell's character name? Or should I just call him Max Shell? That's fine. You just call him Max Shell. Essentially, the argument that Max Shell makes, once the full scope of the crimes becomes apparent, and once the, uh, essentially proof is brought up that there were decisions made for political reasons and not just for purely legal reasons, is that he brings up that if we're going to accuse these men, where does it stop? Do we also accuse like these? Uh, he brings up very early in the trial, I think, in one of the most effective effective scenes or most effective pieces of his argument that uh, the Nazis got their idea of eugenics from uh, America and from American legal precedent, and that is one hundred percent true. And the question becomes: Well, do we blame those people for making that legal precedent that then led to this thing? Where does the chain of responsibility end? And I think that this film makes. Uh, lip service 
to the idea that it is a structural problem, but then doesn't actually follow up on that. And instead says, hey, we got these guys in prison. We did the one good man, uh, Spencer Tracy, did the thing that he was supposed to do. And therefore, it ends, and not necessarily a heroic way, but in a way that you are supposed to understand it should have ended. Whereas by doing that, it evades a structural critique and evades uh, a Marxist or communist critique of the same war crimes, um, which would point to the the community as a whole and the structures that allow these things to come into place and actually criticize like how do we hold people responsible under a system, which I think is an interesting question. But I think that by individualizing these problems, it makes it perhaps more understandable from a traditional narrative standpoint, but it makes it far weaker. And I think that that weakness of blaming individuals for structural problems is a one of the most indicative parts of liberalism used as a pejorative. Interesting. Any thoughts? I, I, I know I just threw a lot out there. I broadly agree. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to process. <laughs> Sounds cogent, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that's um, the interesting things that Spencer Tracy and the Nuremberg trials represent liberalism, essentially. And then obviously the Nazis represent fascism and there's a voice obviously being left out. And uh, if I'm going to reference a meme (laughs) that I saw, um, which is remember when the, uh, the dog wearing pants meme was going around, like would a dog wear pants like this or like this. Right. Um, I saw a meme once, which is would you critique liberalism like this? And one of them was political theology or like this, and the other one was uh, the Communist Manifesto. And the issue with this film is it presents a liberal alternative to a problem that was already critiqued by Schmidt, and offering the same system that was already critiqued without rebutting the critique itself, I think leads to a weaker argument and uh, leads to a reinstatement of liberal values where perhaps those aren't the most useful way to get about societal change. Sure. No, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. Okay. Um, so Heat moves on. So Heat does move on. Um, this is, I can't stress enough how bizarre this film is. And I can't stress also how, I mean, how kind of shocking the use of the, uh, of the concentration camp footage yes. is. When that comes up like, the entire time I was thinking, they're not going to actually do it, are they? And then they actually start showing and, us like, oh my God. They did. For like several minutes. Yes. Which, Again, I understand what you're going for. I understand your goal. Um, noble as it is, it is it doesn't quite work, let's say. I don't know if it's a good movie. It's not a bad movie, but I don't think it's a good movie. But I think like I'm going to recommend it as like an artifact of a very specific time and place and a very specific way of viewing this as kind of a political moment. Yes. I don't, I've never seen anything like it in that respect. Moving on. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so, okay, so he's going, moving on. And now I really don't know how this one's going to shake out. Cause I, 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 I get the suspicion that we're on opposite sides of oh, this particular, of this particular matchup. In any case. So, let's go down. So our next matchup. Uh, the seven seed, Isabel, the seventh best Good film ever Lord, made. That is wild. That's a high. The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Return of the King, released in 2003, uh, directed by Peter Jackson, 
uh, written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, based on The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. It cost $94 million, which is real cheap for this kind of movie. Yeah, especially compared to how much movies cost now. Yeah, this is like, you can make almost three Avengers movies with that money. Uh, you You can make three Return of the Kings for the price of one Avengers. Yes, and you probably should. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, and it made one point one four two billion with a B dollars uh, worldwide, and that's in like money from twenty years ago. So that number is probably higher when we adjust. Versus Dog Day Afternoon, released in nineteen seventy five, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, written by a screenplay by Frank Pearson, story by Thomas Moore, based on The Boys in the Bank by P. F. Kluge, starring Al Pacino, John Cazale. James Broderick, Charles Durning, and Chris Sarandon. Uh, $1.8 million budget, $50 million box office take, and uh, did pretty well at the Academy Awards, going one for six, with uh, Frank Pearson winning for Best Original Screenplay and nominations for Best Picture, Director, Lead Actor, Supporting Actor, and Editing. Uh, I, I, I should probably say that Return of the King uh, won a bazillion... Uh, Oscars. It won every Oscar it was nominated for. That doesn't happen. It uh, was nom. It went eleven for eleven. That is, which is insane. Bonkers. I think I might have talked about this when we did um, when we did Fellowship of the Ring. Is that I don't have a history with this partic- with these particular stories. I never read the Tolkien's as a kid. I never, I like, this was right right in the pocket for me as a teenager to go see at the movie theaters. I did not. A lot of stuff passed me by whenever I was like 13, 14, whatever years old. And this was one of them. I didn't have any kind of like cultural context for The Lord of the Rings other than it was very popular high fantasy shit. I feel like if you would have had the history, we'd have a, be having a much different discussion, let's say. I think you're right. Because the first time I saw Fellowship, was uh, silently on a loop on a demo TV at my old job. <laughs> the best way to watch it. The ideal viewing the, circumstances. Yes. And then I watched it for realsies, uh, you know, at home on my television. And it's a great fantasy film. I can't imagine how you would make a better fantasy film. And I still only gave it four stars. And full disclosure, I, I didn't just watch one in three. That would be ridiculous. So <laughs> I before watching Return of the King, I watched Two Towers, which is further up the bracket. Yes. But, you know, to be fair to the story, you know? And, again, superlative fantasy films, and I was kind of surprised at my own muted reaction to them, because I like everything about these movies, but there's not that, like, spark of attachment, you know? It's like, I like the characters i like how archetypal everything is i like how elemental everything is i like how phantasmagorical these movies can get and really i just like that peter jackson is just a guy that likes to like squish like monsters yes uh, he like, still has like that, that like that claymation gore kind of ethos to him yes even if he's working with these giant budgets uh and making these like uh billion dollar uh franchise films man if you so imagine that you knew who Peter Jackson was in, like, 1987. Mm-hmm. And then someone told you, hey, in, like, 20 years, he's going to be kind of the biggest director on the planet. The Meet the Feebles guy? <laughs> All right. 
Academy Award winning director, Peter Jackson, the guy who made The Frighteners, which is a fine, which is a fine, perfectly film. fine film. So yeah, so uh, Return of the King is a rock solid fantasy film. And you know what? I think I said this in the Discord this morning when I was talking to your friend and mine, Ross Burks, about this. I think jamming two and three right next to each other in the same evening kind of dulled the effect it would have had had I seen them in 2002 and 2003. Not necessarily because I was younger, just because I didn't have like the time to seep, to, to like sort of seep in the adventures of Frodo and friends, you know? Yeah, definitely. So you, if I'm not mistaken, have a history with these. I think saying I have a history is maybe slightly too strong just because I think being a fan of Tolkien can be such a big thing. Like I never learned how to speak Elvish or anything like that, whereas sure. I, I had friends who did. But I think I had friends who had friends who did. Yeah. Um, I definitely had a friend in high school who wrote a love letter to his girlfriend in uh, in Elvish once. You know what? That there's There's a lot of people who might say that's cringe. I think that's a flex. I think it's kind of both. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. <laughs> um, but I definitely did see all these as they were coming out. Um, I watched Fellowship in uh, Two Towers over and over again on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved them. And uh, I saw Return of the King in theaters. And it was an amazing experience. I still like remember it. I still remember going with my dad to see it in IMAX, like the biggest screen they had. Like, hey, show me the fucking... Show me the fantasy. Show me the wizards. Show me, show me the orcs. I want to see it all. And... Being so deeply moved by it. Um, obviously, I've read all the books. I've even read the Sil- Silmarillion because, of course, I have. Sure. Um, no one should do that, by the way. <laughs> Don't read that. <laughs> it's there's it, it won't improve your life by having read it. Uh, and I've seen the extended editions probably about a dozen times through. And usually, I will sit down and watch them in one chunk. So, like, one, like, 13-hour chunk of film. That's so much time. Yeah. I could have watched the Decalogue or Berlin Alexander Platz in that time. <laughs> I find these films kind of incredibly hard to resist. Uh, they're not quite to the degree that like something like Star Wars is for me, where Star Wars has a far deeper hold on me. Like I played all the Star Wars video games. I did all that. I read the extended universe novels, whereas I didn't really play in the video games for uh, Return of the King. It was a little after that period for me. I mean, there's also just a lot less ancillary material for The Lord of the Rings. That is true. But revisiting these movies is kind of how I felt... Um, in a much better way to watching, was it the Re- the Revenge of Sky? What is the one that came out this last year? Revenge of Skywalker. The Rise, Rise of, Skywalker. of Skywalker, which was a shit movie, but it did that <laughs> thing where like I was like, oh, it's Chewbacca. Oh, oh, it's a it's like a Death Star. Oh, it's a Star Destroyer. I know these things and these things. When the fucking Star Wars theme goes in that that Dolby THX, it's like it means something. It's like no, yeah, it's like no, it's like no human can resist that. Yeah. It's like just. Yeah. And, and, and I would say that these films are a slightly, slightly lesser version of that, but there's so many aspects of them I love, especially this film. Uh, I think that Denethor is such a fascinating evil character to have. I think that this is some of the best. I think, like, here's the issue we run into, is that if we were talking about, are we judging this as a trilogy or judging this as Return of the King? I think those are very different conversations. Yes. I mean, if we're talking about the Lord of the Rings trilogy as, like, say, a miniseries. Yes. Different conversation. I think that ends up pretty deep in my own personal IMDb top two fifty. But taken as individual films, their power their power dulls, obviously. I still think Fellowship's the best one. I still think Two Towers is the best one. Oh, I haven't seen that for a little bit. Uh so maybe that will change when I watch it again with fresh eyes. But 
I think so. Neither of us think this is the best one. No, I mean because it's it's also the one that's longest in the tooth. It's the one that is uh, like the fact that there's multiple what seem to be the last battles. Uh huh. And even though I like all those, like I love seeing um like that ghost army that Aragorn ha- Aragorn has. Um, I love seeing that uh-huh. fight. I love seeing um. You know, like when they're like, oh, for Frodo, we're going to do this for Frodo. I think that still tears, like gets me teared up uh, at the end of it. Yeah, my uh, friends, you bought a no one, man. That, like, legitimately every single time I hear that line, I will cry. I, I can watch that on YouTube right now and cry. It's good. It's, it's really, really good. good. Uh, this is, I mean, I think, was it Chris who called this the Hobbits Make Good movie? <laughs> or th- uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That sounds like something Chris would say. Uh, and... The best moments of it are where those storylines are finally completed, like Sam carrying Frodo up the mountain. Yeah. Is uh, incredible. It's so powerful. I can't carry the ring for you, but I'll carry you. Yes. And then them coming back to the Shire uh, is devastating. It's heartbreaking. The most heartbreaking thing in that movie, there's a couple, there's a lot of heartbreaking stuff in Return of the King. Yes. But when Frodo says that he's forgotten the taste of strawberries or whatever. Yeah. That's rough, man. And, and I mentioned this in the chat, but. I want a whole movie set after Frodo comes back from the Shire, back to the Shire from his adventure, and realizes that he's become such a different person that he can't be there anymore. Instead of like the thirty seconds we get in Return of the King, yes, because I think that's such a powerful idea—the idea that hey, I was fighting for these people, I was fighting for this home that I loved and cared about, and now that I come back, I may still love it, but I am clearly not a part of it anymore. I'm clearly separate. I'm clearly different. I'm trying having seen all three movies now, I'm trying to think of like who who is who has the best like who has the best performance or who's the MVP of the third one? Where who has their best stuff in the third one? And I can't think of anyone. Aragorn maybe. Vigo maybe. Uh I think Sean Asmore. Sean Aston? Yeah, that's it. Sure. Sean, that guy. <laughs> Sean Ashmore. <laughs> I said Ashmore for the record. Okay. Well, all right. All right. All right. Um, yeah, Sean, Sean Aston has some good moments. Um, uh, it, it is, it is, it is 200 minutes long. And, um, is, there's like three endings. And, oh, it is much um, longer than that, Derek. <laughs> if you, if you watch that? the real, it's much longer than that if you watch the real version. Oh, yeah. And also, yeah, Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee is not in this movie. Yes, he is. I mean, I thought he was only in the extended editions. Yes, which is the only edition that matters. Well, I I watched the theatricals of all I know. of these. It's a t- it's a nice tidy conclusion. I like I like all of the wizard the D and D wizard shit. I love that. Oh yeah, that's awesome. But as a I, movie, I think it's probably the weakest of the movies individually. I'm starting to think that's the case. I do like how phantasmagorical two towers can get. Uh, I think, and I think I that think, uh, I would not be out of line to say that the reason it won all those Oscars is because of the weight of the previous two movies behind it. Oh, 100%. and the fact that those won nothing, and people were like, "Okay, this this needs to be rewarded with something." So here's the movie we're going to put it on. To be fair, Peter Jackson directs the shit out of this. Oh, 100. percent So that's Return of the King. But let's talk about Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Dick Summer, whatever. What's it called? <laughs> Dog Dick Summer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, uh, a, a gritty, uh, street level New York crime drama directed by Sidney Lumet, starring, uh, a fucking hot shit Al Pacino, seven, 74, 75 Al Pacino, uh, his second appearance on this show today. I think this is a near masterpiece. And I know you're less, you're less hot on it. I- I'm a little bit cooler, yeah. And I think that 
when you say gritty, I think that's the issue I have is that it's not gritty. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I think that a lot of the it's like movie gritty. Mm, is it though? It's mostly goofy. It's a little goofy. And I, I think that that's good for what for the record. I think that that's those are some of my favorite moments in the film when there's some lightness to it and some is that it's not gritty. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I think that a lot of the it's like movie gritty. Mm, is it though? It's mostly goofy. It's a little goofy. And I, I think that that's good for what for the record. I think that that's those are some of my favorite moments in the film when there's some lightness to it and some like beautiful little grace notes between characters. Like maybe it's not gritty. It's like it's like it's like hazy. It's yeah, like it, it, it's it's hot. It's humid. It's trying to do like it's it's like not it's it's not as good as like do the right thing, but it's like angling towards that in terms of uh, temperature and vibe. Or I think it's it's like it's more of a tragedy than anything else. It's a comedy that ends up tragic. Yes, and you know from the beginning it's going to as soon as they as soon as Al Pacino fucks up pulling a gun out of a package. Yep, and you're like, okay, it's just gonna be- that's how it's going to be. I get it. Uh, a tragedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, and. I think that that worked for me for the first about 45 minutes, and then I kind okay. of started to check out. Okay. But I want to hear, what, 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 what makes this film such a masterpiece to you? I like the way it's filmed. I like the mise-en-scene. I like the color. I like the direction. Uh, it's uh, Sidney Lumet has kind of a, like unobtrusive, almost televisual style that I can appreciate. It's not anonymous. It's not like cut, cut, coverage, blah, blah, blah. But there's, there's a certain cleanliness in his style that I really, really like. Uh, I think Pacino and Cazale are magnificent, the both of them. Agreed. I think, um, God, what's his name? Charles Durning was magnificent as, um, as, uh, one of the cops. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, when we talk about like sort of the great character actors, Charles Durning is a name that's always that should always be on your lips because he's fucking fantastic in every movie I've seen him in. Um, and there's a kind of there's kind of a lackadaisical like it's sometimes the movie's very quiet and lackadaisical, and there's times where it's very it, it, there's times where it's literally just Pacino and Durning yelling at each other, and there is one point where. Durning flubs a line and it stays in because it has that kind of immediate sort of flare up feel. I noticed that exact same thing too. And I loved it. I love that. Um, I like, uh, I like how much of a pressure cooker the movie keeps going. It's, it's, it's lighter in places and it's comic and kind of goofy, but I do think this is, this is a kind of a pressure cooker movie. And I think uh, the movie does a really good job of sustaining that from the first second all the way to the end. In spite of the fact that there are moments of relative levity, and uh, yeah, that's a lot of the, that's a lot of things that I like. Okay, I, I have a a plus and a minus kind of in the same sentence for uh, for one thing. Sure, and it's the thing that's obviously we're going to have to talk about, uh, which yeah. is uh, Leon. Yeah, a big a big Chris a big Chris Sarandon shaped question mark in this movie. Yeah, I I'll say the thing I like about it, which is that although clearly the News media, uh, for those who aren't, who aren't aware, uh, it turns out that the reason that the bank robbery is happening is to pay for uh, Leon, who is Sonny's uh, wife, uh, her sexual reassignment surgery. Yes. And 
I think the successful part of that is that although the media clearly sees it as a joke and something uh, sensational and salacious, I don't think the movie does. I think the yeah, movie, no one else does. Yeah, no one else does. Movie treats it relatively level-handedly. Like the fact that um, Sonny never never even really fights about it. He never he's never like, oh, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. He's never he never does that kind of thing, uh, which you would expect. Contrasted by John Cazale, who does. Yes, and I think that that is a character choice. That's right, and it's a really good one. And it's seen and it's seen in the film as like, hey, this is clearly not the thing to be worried about right now. Right. Um. But so so, so I'm. On the one hand, especially for the time period, I'm incredibly impressed with how respectful it is. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what is that performance that Sarandon is giving? What what an are they... Academy Award nominated performance, no less. It's award it's terrible. It's terrible. It's, he it's. Do you want me to say how like what the read that I have on this? Sure. And you know, take this take this for what you will. Chris Sarandon just plays it as an effete man. Yes, that that's all it is. That's that's the character in a robe with like a like with like a blowout haircut. Yeah, like couldn't they have like gotten her like a dress or something? Like wasn't she dressed? Like did she just come from being in the shower? Like what is going on? It's a very and that is the only part of the film that seems to be made for gawking instead of for the actual character traits it has there. Right. Um. It's there's not enough of the character in there to really have strong opinions about it one way or the other. Besides the fact that right. its treatment is relatively decent, but it's it's such a glaring part of the film that's a little hard to. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. Let's say that it's it's yeah, it's like it's not good, but it's not the worst. Yeah, it like, exists in this weird middle space where it's like their movie sees it one way, and it's it it's yeah it's 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 kind of it's kind of hard to parse it's not as cut and dry as um if we compare it to i like i don't know where this sort of lines up against something like silence of the lambs which we had previously discussed this is significantly better <laughs> than silence of lambs okay. uh, like um leon never kills anybody in this one and never wears their skin around so by comparison <laughs> doing very, a lot better that's very that's very true the Academy Award nomination should have gone to Charles Durning. We know this, right? To be fair, there is a a very storied history of um, men getting nominated for Academy Awards for playing trans women. Nominated and winning. And winning. God. Still mad about that. I'm not, not going to stop being mad about that. Especially since it's a terrible, it's worth, it's a terrible performance. That's worth being mad about. Um, so, yeah, that's like the big... That's like the big uh, ink splotch on this movie. That's why I don't, that, this is in part why I'm not giving it the full five. But I, I, there's a lot of this movie that I like. There's so much of this movie that I. Like. I think there's a lot to this movie too. Like I think part of my problems with it was a maybe I just wasn't feeling it that day. Maybe I wasn't feeling the vibe. Uh, I do think it's slightly too long, just like a little bit. If it was tightened up by like 15 minutes, I think you're you're all set there. But uh, I think its strongest moments are. It's goofiest and are the, like, everyone remembers when he screams Attica, Attica. Like, that's, a, that's, a, yeah. that's the most, one of the most famous parts of the film. But it's clear in the moment that he doesn't know what he's doing and is just saying right. something for the crowd. Yes. And I think that's such a wonderful decision that he, um, like, he doesn't even really know what he's trying to do. He doesn't know what his, like, he's going to make a political statement. But if you asked him, like, what it was about, I don't think you could really say. Right. 
Yeah, the 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 veneer of these people as like having a plan <laughs> fades away very quickly. Yes, John Cazale does not know that where uh, what Wyoming is. I love that scene so much. Um, not just because it lived yeah. in Wyoming either. Sure. And and that's actually one of the parts I really like about the phone call with Leon is when he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm here with him." Uh, he's like, "Oh, you're fucked then." <laughs> it's great. It's great because like, yeah, obviously you should never have gotten this guy to be your partner, Al Pacino. Ah oh, man, that's a fucking great movie. So here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I think so. I feel like we're about we feel about the same about Return of the King. Yes, that we're pretty much on the same wavelength. I clearly like this more than you did. This is where my vote is going. Mm-hmm. But I'm very curious to know where yours is going, because I don't know. So I think if you were just to ask me which film do I like more, I would say Return of the King, just because it's got, it's got that connection for me, and it's got that history sure. with me. And I think that I could, I would more likely sit down and just put that on the background mm-hmm. uh, as nice as nice nostalgic noise. But uh, for a couple reasons, I think I'm not going to move it on. I think I'm going to vote for Dog Day Afternoon anyways. Uh, number one is because there's two other Lord of the Rings films in this list. One of them already moved forward, if I remember correctly. That's right. So I'm not concerned about Lord of the Rings not getting its due. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two is you have been kind enough when you have been more or less in the same position. Uh, like re- if our positions have been reversed in the past, you've given it to me. So I think it is only fair. That I say, hey, Derek, you're clearly passionate about this, and I'm I'm totally willing to rewatch it. So let's go with Dog Day Afternoon. All right. Well, thank you, first of all. And uh, now we've set up a uh, a hell of a matchup for the next round: Heat versus Dog Day Afternoon. I, I'm I'm really enjoying the like accidental synergies that this list creates. Um, two uh, t- two different heist movies, two different crime movies, both starring Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that we had so many. Like there was, I think, a couple episodes where he just had a run of crime movies. I think there was three crime movies in that episode versus uh, out of the four. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, I think, I think the IMDb hive mind likes what it likes. Yeah, and we're just kind of get. I think we're just getting to experience that a bit at a time. It likes the most popular movies ever made. That's right. It likes crime movies. Yeah, and it, long and it likes long crime movies. Movies about Nazis. That's right. Those are the three genres of thing that uh, I think that IMDb is a big fan of. Uh, superheroes. I feel like that goes in the uh, made a lot of money category. Okay, made a lot of money. Sure. Okay. Uh, like no one's here. Um, Standing like no one's he- like uh, what was that one that Billy Zane did? <laughs> uh, the fa- I stand for that. I stand for the Phantom. Yes, but I do not think that the average person would stand for the Phantom. What's the one with like Damon Wayans? Is it Blank Man? It is. Yes. Okay. That's 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 a funny movie. <laughs> That's such a strange. Uh, I I I should probably sit down and watch Blank Man. And then there was uh, what's the one that Robert Townsend did after Hollywood Shuffle? Um, was that not it? No, that was. Oh, hold on, hold on. I'm googling this. Meteor Man. Meteor Man, right? I've never seen, but I uh, Hollywood Shuffle is quite good. So maybe I'll get to it at some point. I, yeah, I keep hearing that uh, Hollywood Shuffle is very good. Meteor Man is ninety three. Blank Man is when? Blank Man is ninety four. That's maybe why I was confused. In any case, both of those movies not on this list. Um, so do we have to address anything before I get the plugs? Oh my, hold on. We got to pause real quick because I was looking up the filmography of the director of Blank Man. His name is Mike Binder. Mike Binder, that's right. And he also made uh, everyone's favorite film, Rain Over Me, uh, starring Adam Sandler, 
It has a man who lost his uh, family in the in 9-11. And because of that, he has to yell at Don Cheadle for a while. All right. The Everyone, is this? Rain Over Me? Have you, are you not familiar with Rain Over Me? I mean, like, as a joke, but I didn't know what it was about. You should watch it. It's bad. It sounds like not... He acted in a, uh, a movie I quite liked called The Contender. It was a Rod Lurie film with Jeff Bridges and uh, Joan Allen. One of those uh, political uh, political drama type movies that, that are very uncool, but whatever. Um, so, oh, oh, we oh, have... oh, I was going to say, there's not going to be a uh, fan fiction this episode. A, because okay. um, I feel like we've already gone way over time and I feel bad for just sitting in Julie's room while she's uh, while she's being nice enough to have me here. Um, and also, too, because, um, uh, what do you call it? My my laptop's about to overheat, and okay. I'm already stressed enough from everything that happened earlier today, uh, which, hey, if anyone listening, just uh, I'm going to give an additional plug for myself. If uh, I don't have a job anymore, so uh, if you want to give me money, I would not argue with you. Uh, it's uh, I have a link to where to, like, PayPal me some shit. Uh, at the top of my Twitter. So, uh, no pressure. Like, if you don't actually get it, it's a rough time for everybody. Um, but, uh, sure is. Yeah, life is taking an interesting path, let's say. Interesting is one way to put it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a good way to segue into our full plugs, isn't it? Yes. Uh, speaking of, uh, Twitter, um, well, we'll get to Twitter. Uh, if you want to send us an email, you want to drop us a line with any good vegan recipes or, uh, British takes on the Picts or Bollywood recommendations or anything, anything that you want to send, really, anything that's cool, you can send our way. Our address is middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Derek underscore G. Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. Um, we're both on Letterboxd. Uh, we both have the same handles. Uh, then we have the same handles on Letterboxd and we do on Twitter. Yes, we do not share a Letterboxd. That's right, we do not share a Letterboxd. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter at MetalBrowPod. Um, if you are so inclined, you can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're you're getting your podcasts. Five stars, preferably, but you know, give us what you think we're worth. You know, this is a this is a small show, uh, a, a cult favorite, if you will. But uh, we are so small that a um, even a small bump in ratings would probably increase our visibility tenfold. I think that's it? Question mark? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's everything. So we got it all. Oh, uh, listen to other podcasts on the Noise Space Podcast Network. Yes. Uh, that's where our homepage technically is, at uh, home uh, at uh, noisespace.xyz. Um, I think that's it. Okay. I'm inclined right. to agree with you. Yeah. We'll add it in post if I forgot something. Okay. <laughs> that's how that works, right? Uh, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll use a computer synthesized version of your voice that I have saved in case uh, you ever die. Yes, RoboDerek.midi Robo will just like will uh, save the day if we... we... We have in each other's wills that if we ever die that uh, we give each other the password to our Twitters so that we can g- keep that going and pretend it's still uh, <laughs> happening. Oh, uh, man. You can just it, write the word come I... for all of mine. <laughs> Robot voice says come. <laughs> uh, so many good title ideas in this episode. Um, but I think we should probably wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> until next time, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek God. I have movies, be jolly, and stay safe. Have movies, be jolly, stay safe. Good night. Good night.